All right, good morning, friends. Let's, uh, oops, had it right the first time. Let's flip over to uh, Romans chapter 15. We're going to keep going as we have been through Romans. All right. So, as we've been going through Romans, oops, I ended up in the wrong book. I'm all discombobulated here. All right. If you remember, just by reviews, we kind of move into chapter 15. Um, we've been looking at kind of the practical chapters of Romans, right? So the first one through eight are about how a person is saved by grace through faith and not of works lest anybody should ever try to boast about it. That, that Christ's penalty for sin, or excuse me, payment for sin at Calvary when he shed his blood on the cross what was happening is he fulfilled all the Old Covenant sacrifices, right? So in the Old Covenant, even though salvation has always been by faith, that there was a shedding of the blood of bulls and goats. And that, but all that bloodshed, all those sacrifices, looked forward to when Messiah would come and do away with sin completely, right? That's, a, that's what happened there at Calvary. That's why it, it makes sense. It's not just an arbitrary death where someone bled, but as a, in that, that bleeding, that pouring out, was the death that we deserved, right? And so then, his, when he rose from the dead, it's that testimony of his uh, dominance over death, his dominance over sin, and now he's in heaven. So that's really the first eight chapters, and obviously explained much better. Uh, and then in the, the next 9 through 11, it's, it's God's purpose in, in uh, sovereignty for Israel and that he's working on behalf of the church, two different entities, Israel and the church. Then in chapter 12, like almost all of Paul's uh, letters, it's here's what God did for you, here's what he's doing, and here's how we respond. And so in chapter 12, Paul begins to discuss how we respond both in our hearts and in our behaviors, right? The heart is always more important than behavior. That's, that's really important uh, when we're talking about life change and these type of things. Yes, we should get rid of sinful habits and all that. Nobody's saying we shouldn't, but the real issue is the heart, and so Paul addresses that first and foremost there in chapter 12 where he says that in response to what God is doing and the fact that he's working out all these things in history and in time and in the future for those who will receive him, and because he's doing that, our response, he says, is to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now that's once again a reference to the Old Covenant in the sense that all the animals before, that those animals, not that I'm equating us with animals, but those animals that they were slain and they weren't willing sacrifices. In fact, if you go back and look and read it, the large brazen altar had horns on it. And those horns were specifically to tie animals to it because they would smell the blood and so forth and they would, they would try to retract from uh, the, the, the scene that would be there. So he says as Christians, what we do is those who have received the forgiveness that Jesus has for us, we then move forward and say, and we, we give our lives and say, no, we're the Lord's, we're yours, and you're welcome to work in our hearts as you will. But then in that, that whole process, what he's beginning to refer to in chapter 13 and 14 is this idea that really our ministry is uh, summed up in love, that we love one another, that we love our neighbor, that we love the people in this world. And that's what we've been talking about these, these past weeks as, as we've been going through it. How we deal with the government and how we deal with one another, how we deal with things at church. Chapter 14, he goes forward in chapter 14, and he, he, there's a gear shift here. 
And chapter 14 is difficult, and it's very countercultural, because in chapter 14, he begins, he begins to describe how we work with and interact with Christians who have different beliefs, uh, and peripheral beliefs. Now, we're not talking about Apostles' Creed stuff, like, for example, uh, the deity of Christ, or the, the uh, le- you know, uh, legitimacy of the scriptures, or something like that. The two examples he gives are this, uh, be eating meat and not eating meat, or celebrating a day and not celebrating a day. In the beginning of chapter 14, he starts off this whole talk of differences with this. Don't invite someone or don't welcome someone into your house, your church, your life, whatever it might be, so that you can argue with them about their opinion. So that's we kind of keyed off that. That's huge, right? Because our society in large uh, right now is based on trying to change people's opinions. Typically, it's politically. Um, and, and then the kind of issues that unfortunately have become political through that, um, through just kind of the, through the, the uh, dynamic we have in, in, at least in our country today. And we begin to not look at the person, but to be looking at what we disagree with or the issue. So in the issue of the meat, it's kind of, uh, it, it could be different on what he's talking about. Because remember, just by review, he says, there's those that eat meat and there's those that are vegetarians. Now, he is not talking about health issues. That's really important. Paul is not making a commentary on vegetarianism because of health. He could be speaking of a couple different things. It could be meat sacrificed to idols. That he addresses that in to the Corinthians, and it's addressed by Peter. It's addressed all over this play, uh, all over the Scripture, about because uh, it was forbidden for Jews to take meat uh, that had been sacrificed to an idol and then eat it. They were to have nothing to do with it. But when Christ comes, you have all these Gentiles that are getting saved. And, and we, as we, we talked about there in the first eight chapters, we've been set free from the law. So the law does not apply is not uh, for Christians, right? For us, it's not that we do whatever we want. We, we've talked about that. But it's that we don't follow Levitical law, and it's not a source of righteousness for us. So what happens is you have all these Jews, all these Gentiles, they're getting saved in the early church. And so Gentiles uh, were... It, it was normal for them. The reason, you can go into a pretty deep history, but ultimately it was this. Meat that was sacrificed to an idol. In other words, I get up you know, in the morning, whatever, I grab a piece of the, the, the goat or the lamb that I've just slaughtered, and I bring that to, say, Diana's temple, right? Let's say I live in Ephesus. I bring it to Diana's temple. I give it to the priest there, and he has a ritual with it, and then they keep some of it, and some of it then would go to market. So there'd be like a market, a, you know, a tent, out in front of uh, or around the, the temple uh, from Diana or at a, um, a bazaar, and you could buy that meat, right? Because there's no refrigeration. There's no, right? So everything has to be used basically that day or, day or within a few days. And so that meat was oftentimes cheaper than, say, like the kosher meat or something like that. So it was normal for cheap people like myself to go and say, well, I'm just going to get that piece of goat because, I mean, what do I care, right? Well, what happened was... People, Jews, who were Christians, they began to get very leery of that. It concerned them. It violated their conscience. And they said, no, we can't eat that because it's been sacrificed to idols. But you have Paul and other New Testament writers that are saying, no, no, no. You are free from the law. You're free to eat that meat. You're not bound by that law anymore because Christ fulfilled the law in his earthly ministry and his sacrifice and his rising from the dead. And so now we live not according to law, but according to spirit. And there's more to be said about that, obviously. But so people were having conscience about it. So he could be talking about that. He could be talking about that about 800 B.C., uh, during the Greek um, uh, 
philosophy, during, well, not during, Greek philosophy's been around all the time, but in Greek philosophy, there were philosophers that started to put forward that, that animals had souls. And so in eating an animal, you were consuming a soul, and that, that might have some sort of spiritual consequence afterwards. So you had a whole um, subset of people that bought into those philosophy ideas, and so they were vegetarians. Uh, so they wouldn't eat because they were concerned about the consuming uh, the soul of an animal and what that might mean for the afterlife and so forth. And so those people are getting saved too, right? Because you, you have every walk of person that are now the gospel is spreading and people are starting to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in, in, in what he calls uh, us to walk in. So what happens is Paul now writes a letter to Rome and, and he's addressing this. Now he says this, he says, the person that eats the meat that they have the stronger faith. Again, we're not talking about health issues, so let's just chuck that out. He says the person that eats only vegetables, that they have the weaker faith. Why? Because they have a conviction that is not based on scriptural reality. Does that make sense? I'll use myself as an example. I think I used this example last week. I have this really weird hang-up where it kills me to see a Bible on the floor. All right? I'm not even going to talk about the reasons because I don't want you to be enslaved with the same hang-up. Okay? But it just started something when I was a young believer and whatever. And so if you put it on the floor and you find it on your chair, like I said last week, it was probably me. And I apologize. It's just, it's not you, it's me. It's my weirdness. But, so because I have this hang-up. And so that's my weaker faith at the end of the day, right? It's my conviction. It's not in the scripture. The scripture doesn't ever say thou shalt not put it on the floor. You know, if you're dancing on it in mockery, that may not be something you want to do. But ultimately, you know, putting it on the floor or something like that, it's not, there's nothing holy or unholy about that, Right? And so I have this, this weak faith in that area. It's just this conviction, this weird conviction that's a hang-up for me, right? So Paul says that's what it's like. He says the person that won't eat the meat, Jesus has told us you can eat meat. You can eat whatever meat you want. Jesus has told us that he fulfilled the law, and we're not obligated to be part of that law anymore. So the person who still refrains because of a hang-up from their past or whatever that might be, all Paul is saying is that's a place of weak faith. That's a place where you're not trusting or a person is not trusting fully in what God said because he has released you from that. Does that make sense? So when he says that, we're not talking about you know, trashing people or anything like that. My guess is that, that for many of us that we're all weak and strong, that there's places in our lives where we have convictions and we're good with it and we have a strength in that area. We aren't, we have, we're not uh, worried or we're not deviating from what God's word says in that area. And then there's other places where we might have a conviction that's not based on God's word and that would be a weak faith, right? Uh, last week we talked about like, something like drums in the worship, right? If we have this giant hang-up about drums in the worship, it's not in there. There's, like, there's no book you can turn to that says thou shalt not have percussion. You know, that doesn't exist. So to have a conviction that says drums can't be in the worship because they're used in ceremonies in Africa or whatever thing you come up with is not faith. It's opinion. And so if you maintain that, Paul would say that's weaker faith. I'm not trying to insult you if you like or don't like drums. That's not my point. My point is just bringing up live, normal uh, things that we might deal with. Alcohol is another one. There is nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt not drink. It says that we don't want to be part of excess, debauchery says that we don't want to be, uh, that it, it was sin or it's missing the mark to be addicted in the sense of have, let something having power over your life. If you need alcohol to sleep, if you need alcohol to deal with things, that that's a, a situation that is not good and God wants to work and heal that. 
Um, uh, and, and in this case, we have meat sacrificed to idols. And the second one he gives, with the example in chapter 14, that has nothing to do with, with weak or strong faith, is the celebrating of days. And whether it's uh, you know, Hanukkah or Christmas or the Feast of Booths from the, from the law, he says that when a person celebrates a day, they celebrate that day to the Lord. And that's fine. So if you're a, you're a Jew or you're a Gentile and you just like the Feast of Booths, you're just really into the fact that God sustained Israel for 40 years uh, as, a, as a migrant people in the desert and you want to celebrate God's faithfulness to Israel and the model that it is for you because we're the church, we're not Israel. And so you set up a lean-to next to your house and you know camp out with your kids for a week to remember that. They'll probably love it. But if you're a Christian and you're walking by and someone's doing that, you don't go, what are you doing? You're not under the law. That's weak, right? No, the person that celebrates the day, they celebrate it unto the Lord. And the person that doesn't celebrate the day, they do not celebrate it unto the Lord, right? That's the point that he makes. So if, you know, last week we talked about Easter, the reason a lot of Christians don't want to celebrate Easter, or not a lot, a few, is because it has not Jesus' resurrection, but the day because of Constantine and his, his, his merging of polytheism and, and um, uh, Christianity came up with days like Easter or Ishtar, celebration of fertility. All the bunnies and the eggs, those are derived from uh, that merger of encouraging polytheists who worshipped Ishtar, she goes by other names, but the goddess of sex and fertility, and said, hey, we can celebrate it in the springtime just like we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And he tried to merge that in Rome. That's where you get a lot of those traditions. So some Christians look at that and they go, I can't celebrate Easter. And so that's fine because they don't celebrate it. They reject those pagan rituals and say, I'm not going to have any part of that. That's fine. But if you're a family that says, we're going to paint eggs and then we're going to go to church and we're going to worship Jesus. But you know, nobody's pulling out a little Ishtar that is an exaggerated version of a woman and like bowing down to it or something like that as part of their ceremonies. That's fine. The one who respects the day, respects it to the Lord. And the one who doesn't respect the day, doesn't respect it to the Lord. So remember, the whole purpose and the whole foundation that we're talking about here, uh, and I mentioned this at the beginning, is this. How can we be building God's kingdom? Right? That's what we're concerned about here. And so a lot of hindrances from God's kingdom, I would say personally, and we could argue about this, and I'd actually be super into it to talk about it. I would say the vast majority of hindrances to God's kingdom have nothing to do with the world. They're all from the church. We are our biggest enemies. The world is not our enemy. They, they just hate us. That's fine. You know, they want to pass legislation that, that would hinder us. That's fine. Like that, that, that's no match for the gospel. We don't care what hindrances come from the law. They mean nothing to us because it cannot stop the gospel. Paul from prison writes, the word is not bound. So, we don't worry about that. But the biggest hindrances, they come from us, don't they? Instead of being able to just enjoy a worship service, we say, oh, those drums again. Or we go, oh, it was too loud. Or, oh, it was too quiet. Or, oh, that person's, they were too loud or they were too quiet. I'm not saying there's not room for excellence. But we do those things, not the world. We pick on people. You know, I've been, I've been places. I'm not a vegetarian. I don't want to be a vegetarian. I... But I, I don't have any love loss for vegetarians. Hopefully you don't either. But I've been in, in Christian circles before where people mock vegetarians. 
as if it's some sort of godly thing to eat meat, as if like Jesus himself was like, well, there was my crucifixion, and then there's barbecues, is you know, some sort of form of godliness. It's kind of that good old boy type of thing or something. And so oftentimes we are that. He makes another statement. He says the person that eats the meat is not to despise, which means to disesteem or devalue or contempt the person who doesn't eat it. And the person who does not eat the meat is not to condemn or to cast judgment upon the person who does eat. In other words, and as we mentioned last week in, in 1 Corinthians 8, when Paul is talking about meat sacrificed to idols to the Corinthians, one of the things he says is, he says, if you're in the temple eating your meat, and this is one of those profound statements of liberty in the scripture. He's literally saying when you're in an idol's temple, when you, Christian, are in the temple of an idol and you're eating your meat, if your brother sees you and is stumbled, then you shouldn't do that anymore. So he's literally saying, Christian, you can roll down to the temple of Diana, get your French dip, and be sitting there eating it. And that's perfectly legitimate because we know that there's no power in an idol. He says, but if someone walks by from church, you know, we're kind of using the, this modern-day iteration of what church was like, but if someone walks by you that knows you and is a believer, and they're like, <gasps> he says, then you, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't walk in that way anymore. And that's where I think it really shows the picture that the person walking by going, <gasps> is not to look at that person sitting in the temple of Diana and go, you disgusting sinner. Meat sacrificed to idols, chilling in a place that celebrates sex. This is unreal. Right? He says, no, you don't do that. And he says to the person who's eating the meat, when you see the person go, oh, you don't go, you weak loser. <laughs> Your faith is so chump. Oh, look at me. He says, no, you don't despise the person that abstains and you don't judge the person that doesn't. And the person that celebrates the day, you don't despise the person for celebrating the day. If you're a person that says, hey, look, I just can't, I can't bring myself to get a basket and throw some bunnies in it that 3,000 years ago represented uh, sexual stuff and then have my kids go hunt for eggs. I just can't do it. Hey, God bless you in that because you're doing it for the Lord, right? You're saying, I want to make sure that I don't partake in those things and, and, and expose my children to that for the Lord. But if you say, doggone it, it's just fun to hide some eggs and paint them. And nobody's getting weird with the sexual stuff. We're just finding them with the kids and we enjoy it. Hey, God bless you in that. Find your eggs, right? No judgment, no despising. Imagine if the church really operated like that. I mean, imagine if we really treated each other like that. We didn't go around saying, oh, uh, yeah, we should have them over for the dinner because they have this weird like egg thing going on and we need to, we need to address that. We need to get that fixed right now. That's what Paul is saying. He's going to go on and he, he finishes it. And it's interesting because the, the last part of chapter 14 is this. He says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. Contextually, everything is clean. Okay? He's not saying, hey, I look at porn because it's clean. No, it's not clean. He's saying contextually. And he's going to give us the context. So he says, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So he's, he's, just, he's going back to his original example of the food. And he's saying, look, indeed, all the meat is clean. You can eat pork now. You can eat shellfish now. You can eat peacocks now if you want to. All the meat is clean. It's all clean. And he goes, but if eating that meat 
causes your brother to stumble, you shouldn't do it. He's going to give some parameters for that. He says, verse 22, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blesses the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. This is huge. This is so important. Do you have faith to drink a beer with your burger? Keep it to yourself and your God. That's what he says. He says, do you not have faith? Does drinking alcohol bother you? He says, great. Keep it between yourself and God. So there's, not a, there's no reason to, to air these things and talk about these things and to try to measure each other for these things. Now, it's a different story. If you see me out in front of LBT vomiting in the gutter, then come talk to me and say, hey, what happened? What's going on in your life? Why did you feel like this, is, this was an answer for you? Why did you feel like this was what was going to help you? Why do you? What are you trying to forget? What are you trying to work through? What's going on in your life that this would occur, right? But if you see someone in LBT having a beer and eating their pizza, because let's be honest, they have good pizza. If you see that, leave them alone, right? There's no sin there. That's, it's literally what he's saying, which for some of us, we're like, like short circuits. We're like, no, righteousness and all Peripheral issues are not our business with one another. But he says, if you have the faith, have it to yourself. There is a wisdom from saying, hey, you know what? If I'm out as a restaurant, I'm just going to have a Pepsi. If you go out to a restaurant and have a beer, God bless you in that. But you might decide, you know what? Last time I was out at a restaurant and I had a pitcher and my pizza or whatever it was you're doing, it really stumbled someone from church. They couldn't really handle that. They were like, what are you doing? Then it it's wise to not do that. And you go, oh, that's curbing my, that's, that's curbing like my, my rights. Yeah. And that's where, that's where 15 goes in a really mean way. He says, verse, 20, uh, verse 23, um, I'm sorry, the second part of verse 22. He says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So the point is that when you have faith to do something, in other words, when we say faith, you have a conviction. You don't feel like God wants you to not or to do something. Does that make sense? In other words, you, we, a conviction is, like if you have a conviction, let's use the beer one because we're rolling with it. If you have a conviction that God's perfectly okay with having, you having a beer with dinner, all right, and you don't condemn yourself, and here's the thing, you're the only one that can know that. All right? And sometimes we lie to ourselves and we try to pretend that things are okay for us to do when in reality we know darn well that they're not. Right? But in the case that we're trusting, that, that we're walking with the Lord, we're open to what he wants, if you're, if you're doing that, he says there's a blessedness in not doing things that you feel condemned in. In other words, let's say I don't have that conviction. Let's say that uh, I, I, I feel like, man, alcohol is just it's a risky thing for me. I don't think I want to go down that path. But I go somewhere, and for some reason, I get emboldened. I see, uh, you know, we go out to dinner, and, and we're, you know, we're at LBT, and we're getting a pizza together, and you order a pitcher, and I'm just like, oh, man, maybe it is okay. But my heart is kind of clenched up. You ever been in a moment like that where you're like, oh, should I, shouldn't I? I don't know what to do. And then you begin to drink, and, or whatever it is the thing is, and you're like, oh, you feel convicted about it. He said, that's what he's talking about. And, he said, and he's saying, if you feel convicted about it, you shouldn't do it. But if you don't feel convicted about it, there's a blessedness, a happiness, in just walking with God, God in a way where you're just doing what you know he wants you to do or what you know he's okay with you doing. That's what he's saying here. So he says, you're, there's a blessedness if you don't pass judgment on yourself <laughs> because you're doing things that you know God has approved. And then verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. 
because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So he says the person, in this case, we're back to the meat issue. He says the person that believes with their whole heart that they should not eat the meat, but then moves forward and eats the meat, he says that person is condemned. Now the question is condemned by who? Because we can turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which tells us what? That there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. What does being in Christ mean? It's saved people. We did whole teachings on that. I'm not going to go back to it right now to rehash it. I'd be glad to talk about it afterwards if you'd like to. But to be in Christ is literally to be a saved person. So he says that God never condemns a saved person. A Christian is never condemned by God. Is there judgment that occurs in our life? To an extent, but again, another teaching. Never condemnation. So when he says here, if that person is, has a, con- a conflict in their conscience about this meat, and they eat it anyway, that they are now condemned, he's not saying they're condemned by God. He's saying you're, they're condemned by themselves. They condemn themselves. What do we read right before this? You're blessed, you're happy, if you do the things that your faith allow you to do, if you do something in which you do not condemn yourself. So now he's saying if you go beyond what your conscience will allow you to do, that you bring a condemnation from yourself upon yourself. Does that make sense? And that's a miserable place to be, isn't it? It's a miserable place to be, to feel condemned because you're doing something that you know that God doesn't want you to do. And, and, and again, going back to my weird thing with the Bibles. If I, you know, if I decide, okay, today's the day I'm breaking the chains, you know, whatever, I'm going to put it on the ground, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, but my whole heart is just wrenched and like tight, and I'm like, oh, what am I doing? That's not blessedness. That's not joy. That's not peace. That's not happiness. It's condemnation. All right, so we have to be careful that our liberty doesn't become a, a, a stumbling block, doesn't become something that hurts someone else. And we have to be careful that we're walking in what we believe God would want us to do. I'm not saying that we never work through, like for example, if we go back to the Bible thing or the drinking or the meat sacrifice to idols. If I struggle with that, but I know it's not from God, I need to acknowledge that, right? And say, you know what, I'm not really condemned by this, but that doesn't mean that I move forward and force the issue. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. In chapter 15, though, it gets pretty spicy, because this is completely countercultural. It's, it's counter to our nature. And it's counter to our entire, how our nation operates. It's, it's completely different. He says there in verse 15, We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. You know, it's funny because when you uh, like go to like a graduation party, that verse is never like in Hallmark, is it? You know, that's not, that's not a graduation party verse. No, look, Jeremiah is. I know the plans that I have for you. Plans of, you know, peace and whatever. That's what we put on graduation things. But to the Christian, this is what Christian life is. We who are strong are obliged. What does it mean to be obliged? Besides, like, you live from the South, right? Much obliged. What does it mean? It means a debt. When you say, I'm obliged, when they use that expression, what they're saying is, I'm in your debt. So Paul is literally saying, the strong, now who are the strong? People of conviction, people of faith, people that are trusting God in their life, people that are walking with God, people that are dealing with their sin, right? 
He says, we who are strong owe, owe people who are weak. We owe them to bear their burdens. And the word bear there means literally to carry. Which is, 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 that's interesting. And he says, and not to please ourselves. So Paul even makes a differentiation. There's pleasing myself, and then there's bearing other people's burdens. So if Paul is honest, let's be honest too. It's not fun. It's like not usually on the to-do list of fun things on Saturday. What's your plan today? Bear other people's burdens, especially weak people's burdens, because we already think they're weak. And let's be careful with, I'm the strong and they are the weak. Let's, just, let's be careful with that. But he's saying we owe people. So if you see me like sweating in the corner, picking my Bible off the floor, like, <sighs> you know, he says, you have to owe it to Jay. You could come over and be like, are you stupid? Like, what is your deal, dude? It's a piece of paper. What's written on is important, but that's eternal in Christ. It's not, it's not this thing that's what is your deal, James? Calm down. Go get yourself some water. I'll pick it up for you. Wow, you started a church, you loser, right? That could be the interaction we have. Or the interaction could be like, that's really weird. But uh, hey, I'm sorry you're, you're suffering from that. Let me, you know, is there something I can do to help you? Maybe I could hold your Bible for a second while you get your coffee. Literally bear the weakness. In the same token, with the drinking, the same thing. You say, well, I have the right to go out and have a beer with my burger. You absolutely do. You have the right to do that. The, 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 the constitutional right in the United States of America to go out and, and, and drink your beer with your burger. You 100% do. But who are you pleasing? And again, I don't care if you do. So, so I'm like, I'm, There's no like secret case here where James is trying to say don't drink beer with burgers. I am not saying that. I am just saying that we have to evaluate who are you trying to please if you know that there's someone around who will not be able to bear it, who will be stumbled by it, who will have difficulty with it. See, Jesus is literally telling us through the words of Paul that we owe it to each other to take care of each other and prefer one another above each other in issues that are not sin. He's not saying that you just kind of whatever goes, goes, and whatever happens. He's not saying that. He's saying that our job as Christians is to be involved with building up God's kingdom. Here's the thing. We've been talking about this the whole time from Romans. You don't have to do that. You don't. You can live your whole life living for yourself as a believer. We know that. And, and I'm not going to rehash all that from 1 Corinthians 3, all that. You can live your whole life, the Spirit beckoning to you. Come be with me. Come serve me. Serve your brothers. You can live your whole life that way. And we know what will happen is, we know this from 1 Corinthians 3, that all that selfishness that we built up and that love for self and that, that giving to self and, and self-indulgence and, and, and isolation and all that, when we stand before Christ and he sees that, he will just tell us, I love you, but that part of you cannot come into my kingdom because there's no selfishness in my kingdom. There's only life and liberty and love in my kingdom, and selfishness has no place from there. And the only description that we have is this. It will be burnt from us. We will pass through fire, and it will be burnt from us. So it's not, it doesn't sound like a happy time. It doesn't sound like a thing you really want to go through. But it says, but he himself shall be saved, though as by fire. 
So once those parts of us that have become ingrained, because that's what selfishness does. Catering to self is ingrained and becomes who we are. Have you noticed that? It becomes habitual. It becomes uh, something we protect and we guard after. It becomes something that when someone touches it in our life, we rage at that. And so Jesus says, I will forcibly take it from you, which I think is both, it's, it's the blessing and the curse, isn't it? It's the shame and the curse that, we'll, that if we do stand before Christ and, and, and say, yeah, I did. Forgive me. I held that my whole life. I preferred myself my whole life. I insisted on me my whole life, and that's what I built my life on. And the shame and the difficulty of, of standing before Jesus because of that. But on the other side, it's the gloriousness of that Christ will, in his mercy and in judgment, burn from us that which we would not let go. And then to be finally free of it. I would imagine that after the, the difficulty of walking through that, that the relief of having it removed from us and that passing from death into life into eternal life into heaven, I think that'll be part of the glory of heaven. Just an opinion. You can throw it away. But when I imagine as we stand before Christ and all those things that we insisted on, and why did we insist on them? We were sure that it was real life, weren't we? We were sure that it was vitality. We were sure that it was, if I didn't hold on to that, that I would lose myself. I'd lose my identity. I would lose who I am, that I'd be dominated, that I would, that I would die. I was for fear of death. And to finally have it removed and realize, no, the whole time it was death. But now I'm actually liberated. I think it's going to be a wild thing to stand before the Lord in that. But Paul, he's just making this statement. He says, look, you know, we owe people around us. We owe them to help them bear their burdens. We don't always think of it that way. I think part of that, I'm not a person that wants to poo-poo on the American church. You're like, you could, there's like about a million books right now. It's kind of a really cool thing to do, uh, is to write a book about how chump the church is. Um, I think it's important to remember that the church has been chump since like day two after the ascension of Jesus, right? It takes the church 15 years to realize that Gentiles can actually be saved. Can you imagine trying to go to church as a Gentile when most of the Jews are like, <laughs> no. That's dysfunctional, right? So in America, we have certain traditions, certain things that we do, and they may be dysfunctional. But it is what it is. We, we try to fix those things. So I'm not here to pick on the church or anything like that. I'm just talking about in our present iteration of church. And the, church, the word church, it means ecclesia. If you're not, I don't say that to be fancy. You can impress your friends, I guess, at Christian socials. I went to the ecclesia this morning. But, you know, really, the, the word church, all it means is this, a called-out gathering. That's what it means. It's a called-out gathering of God's people. So that's why when we say we're part of the church, universally, everyone who's ever called upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved, is they are church. You technically say I'm going to church. I don't want to be weird about it or you know, cause you to stumble. It's incorrect. You have never been to church because you are the church. So you are with you and the other people around you all the time, right? You are the dwelling place for God's Holy Spirit, and collectively we're the dwelling place for his presence, right? And that's what he's building. You know, I'm not trying to be a jerk or weird or something like that. But all I have to say is a lot of times we can look at, because of the kind of the present iteration we have of church, as we say in the United States, we kind of show up and then we leave. And I'm not here, here's the thing. I don't say that judgmentally. I really don't. I'm not making a point. I'm not going, I know what you guys do. I have no idea for a lot of you what you do and don't do. So that's, and, and, that's, and that's between you and Jesus. Thank God. I never want to be the one that goes, well, you're, you're, that's not for me. That's between you and Jesus. 
But what can happen because of the current iteration of how church works in the United States of America, where it's just kind of this thing, we go Sunday, typically around 10 o'clock, and we do that, unless, unless it's an incredible mega church, and then we might have a Saturday night service or something like that. Again, no judgment, just facts. Because of that, we can fall into this thing where it's like, I come, and then I go. I come and I go, and I come and I go, and this is what I do. When in reality, that was never Jesus' design. It was never designed, church was never designed to be a thing that you go to. It was always supposed to be who you are. It was actually a translation of identity, that I was no longer going to the, the temple of Diana trying to uh, solicit her for more children or better sex. It's no, I no longer go to the you know, Amun-Ra in Egypt to, to find a better afterlife. I no longer gone to Ra to find sun or you know, whatever. I no longer sacrificed to Moloch in, in an attempt to get better crops or Baal. All that went away. I'm no longer those things anymore. I am now, and you are too, because of my faith in Christ and his sacrifice at Calvary. I am part of this called out God, gathering that God, of people that God wants to bring to himself. And so if I am that, that means I am obligated by decree of Jesus to be invested in each person. But like I said, you don't ever have to do it. You don't. But if you do not, and if I do not, and I say this, I hope you can trust me, with love. I'm not here to like smash people's dreams or something. That's not my deal. But, but if you do not, you will live an empty life. You will constantly, that it will have no merit in heaven. If we constantly cater to ourselves and neglect other people, we will probably be very successful in this life because that's how this world works. We'll probably be revered by people as being strong. We'll probably feel strong because we can feel like, you know, I'm a rock, I'm an island. You know, I feel no pain. We can do all sorts of things. But the reality is when we stand before Christ, it will all come crashing down, if it doesn't first. And typically it does. Typically it does come crashing down. I've known people personally in my own life that I think uh, that are near to me that have had essentially mental breakdowns. And before those mental breakdowns, they were powerhouses. Just go, 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 and accomplish, accomplish, accomplish. Am I, again, I'm not trying to put down accomplishment. I'm not. I'm trying to talk about priority. And if our priority is singular accomplishment and self-promotion, uh, it's vain and it's tragic. And so Paul's coming along and says, look, part of our mentality, part of what we're called to do is to bear, to carry the failings of the weak. Not to despise them, not to measure them, but to love them and to carry them. He goes on there and he says, verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Again, so we have a purpose now. And he says, please his neighbor. And, and we can say, well, then who is my neighbor? It didn't really work out for the, the scribes and Pharisees when they asked Jesus that. And so we're not going to argue that today. At the end of the day, your neighbor is everyone. That's who your neighbor is. Somebody that's close to you. Somebody who at some point is in proximity to you. The person you can minister to. That's who your neighbor is. And so he says there, one of the things he says, that we should do good by our neighbor. Why? To build him up. Because what are we building? This is, again, what are we building? Let's say you have a neighbor. Let's say you mow your lawn. And you know, on a lawnmower, it blows the grass out, unless you bag it. It blows the grass out on one side or the other, right? So you can have options when you're mowing your lawn. Where the grass is going to go that you cut, right? And so you could 
if your, if your property line permits, you could just mow your lawn and blow all that grass right onto your neighbor's yard, couldn't you? And realistically, there's like legally nothing they could do except build a fence. Right? You could do that. But if you do that day after day and you know that your neighbor cares about that, when it's you know, Christmas time and you're like, I'm going to invite my neighbor over to come to my church and hear about Jesus. You think he's going to listen to you? You think he's going to care? He's going to be like, no. You're the dude that blows grass in my yard every week when I asked you not to. Or maybe something a little more personal. Maybe you like to, to blare, uh, and I don't mean blare in a negative way, maybe you like really loud music. And so in your house on Saturday morning, you have crazy loud worship music. And you're worshiping the Lord and dusting and doing whatever you're doing and whatever it is, but you live in a duplex. And so now your neighbor hears worship music. Do you have the right to worship your God and play worship music as loud as you want until 10 p.m., which is like the legal quiet hour? Yes, you do. You do. You have the legal right to have your whatever you want, loud as you want, doing your thing. You can do that. But you know what? When you walk out every morning, is it building your neighbor up? Does he look through the window or she looks through the window and go, you piece of... I can't believe these people. No, it doesn't. What kingdom do you want to build? Do you want to build your authority, your assertion, your rights, what you deserve? You can build that. I'm going to be honest with you. I have a genuine concern. I wouldn't call it a fear. It doesn't keep me up at night. But I have a genuine concern. And this is, this is again, this is a personal opinion. So you can just throw it right in the trash. I don't want to stand before the Lord and tell him, I insisted on my rights and to hell with my neighbors because doggone it, this nation was founded on Judeo-Christian values and all that whole rigmarole. Do I love the nation? I do. I do love the nation. I've said that before. I've done a little bit of traveling, been to France, England, Canada. This is the best place on the planet. That's my opinion. It's the best country hands down. We have the most freedom. We have the, the, the you know, the standard of living is the highest in the world. It's an incredible place. But you know, at the end of the day, we can work to build up our freedom and our this and our that in this nation. We can look to build up the Constitution, and that's fine. But I don't think any of us wants to stand before the Lord. I certainly don't, and just say, you know what the most important thing to me was? My rights. I'm not saying anything about veterans or wars. I'm not making any commentary on that. I'm very thankful for the, the wars that have been fought to preserve the sovereignty of the U.S. But what I am saying is that as Christians, in our everyday life, we have to decide what we're going to build. Because a lot of times, it's completely um, different. It, like the, the, the two kingdoms can't coexist. Sometimes they can't. But a lot of times they can't. So we have an obligation, if we want to do God's will, to be those that curb our rights for the sake of our, our brethren. Now, obviously, there's weird people, okay? There's a million what-ifs. Anybody having a, a what-if right now? There's a million what-ifs. You know, I've, I've met, uh, I was talking to a, a lady one time years ago. We were talking about, um, I think it was like modesty or something like that. And I was not talking to her about it. She was talking to me about it. I just want to make that clear. And... <laughs> And she, she goes, yeah. She goes, you know, the thing is, like, I had a guy one time tell me at church that uh, my open-toed shoes were really stumbling him. And I'm like, that's weird. 
That's weird. So there, there, there will come a point, because people are weird and broken, that we can't please everyone. So we're not, we're not talking about that, okay? We're talking about the length that we can in the power that we have to make sure that our sisters and brothers in Christ and our neighbors are built up. We're talking about a life that builds other people up. And Jesus told us, he said, if you want to, he says, if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. That's what he told us. If you're constantly seeking to preserve you, your identity, your rights, all these things, he says, in the end, you'll lose that. It has no substance to it. He says, but anyone who loses their life for my sake, in other words, not just arbitrary becoming a doormat, but, but, but in those moments saying, Lord, what you want, Lord, what you're doing, Lord, your kingdom priority. I'm not going to rage on this person from that. I'm not going to be unthoughtful or rude in that. I'm not going to do these things because I want them to have the opportunity to be built up in their faith. I want them to have the opportunity to have the same joy, the same peace that I have because of what you gave me. And it's a choice every day for us. So, and then he's going to give us Christ's example. Verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, he's, this again, it's an Old Testament quote. And he says, For whoever was written in, excuse me, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. Let's check that out. Let's, let's unpack that. So he says, look, this is how Jesus, number one, this is how Jesus lived. And he quotes from Psalm 69. It's a messianic psalm, and he, and meaning that it's a psalm that was prophetic, written uh, hundreds of years before Jesus, but fulfilled what he went through. That's what it means. So he, uh, the psalmist writes this psalm, and what happened was the people that hated God ultimately, the religious leaders and a lot of other people that hated God, those reproaches, so casting an insult or taking away from God, he says, those reproaches fell on me. So Paul makes this statement. He says, Jesus served this way. And one of the ways that he served God was that he came to the Jews, and when he was there, the same hatred and so forth that they had for God, they cast it on him, who himself also was God. Is God, I should say. So he bore their reproaches. He served in this way. He was quiet when they, when they reviled him. He was, um, he did not, well, it says it right there. He did not please himself. Jesus did the things that pleased the Father. He goes on, he says this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Now, remember, this is, he's writing this in a letter in 57 AD. There is no New Testament yet, right? <laughs> this is important. The New Testament doesn't exist, and it won't exist in its current form like we have it until the 300s. So it's always important to keep in mind that the, the church came before the Bible. Do we love the Bible? Absolutely. Is it, the, uh, is it inerrant in its original forms? 100%. Uh, you know, does what we have today very trustworthy? Absolutely. Super into it. But he's not saying the Bible when he says the scriptures because they don't have it. They have the Old Testament at this point and they have some other letters that Paul started circulating in around 46, 42, right around in those years. That's when the first letters begin to circulate that we have uh, in, the, the, in the New Testament begin to circulate through Christianity. Does that make sense? So what he's saying is, when you read the Old Covenant and you see the Old Testament and you see these examples of people that suffered for God's people, just like Jesus did. So the first evidence is that Jesus lived this way. The second evidence is that the, the, some of the patriarchs, 
they live that way. And then you have other people uh, in the Old Testament that live that way, whether it be Gideon um, or Jael, you know, people like that that lived, uh, men and women that lived for Christ and were despised for it, right? That, 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 were, that curbed what they wanted. Gideon's a perfect example of that. The other reason that it's so awesome that he's giving these examples is that none of those people were perfect, were they? None of them were. You have Joseph, who like literally, he knows his brothers hate him. And he's like, let me tell you this dream I had that I'll dominate you. You know? That's what Joseph did to his brothers. You have Abraham, who just has a long list of being a kind of a bad husband, trading off his wife twice to a harem. That's real faith. Isn't that the faith you want your husband to have? No, these guys, they were broken people. You have Gideon, where God comes to him and is like, hey, I want you to lead my people. And he's like, no. It's too scary. <laughs> he says, the angel comes to him and says, Gideon, you mighty man of God. But where's Gideon when he does that? He's like literally in a hole in the ground, threshing, trying to get wheat, which is like super counterproductive because the way they used to thresh wheat is being a windy place. And you would throw it and the chaff gets blown away and the seeds, the wheat kernels fall to the ground. So Gideon is literally in a hole doing like, Worthless work, like, <laughs> trying to get it to work. And the, the angel comes to him and says, mighty man of God. And he goes, he's like, you know what? I'm like the littlest one in my family. My family is like the smallest in like our whole tribe. So not today. And then the angel's like, no, 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 for reals. God wants you to, to use him, to use you. And he's like, okay, well, here's what I'll do. I got this rug and I'll throw it outside tonight. And if there's water everywhere on the ground except the rug, I'll believe you. So he racks out, he throws the rug out, he racks out, he gets up the next morning, and it's, it's that way. There's dew everywhere on the ground, except on the rug. And Gideon, you think, you know, he's like, yeah, I'm in. He's like, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, this time, dew only on the rug, and no dew anywhere else, which seems pretty unlikely. So he racks out, and he gets up the next morning, and that's what it's like. And the angel appears to him, and he's, he's literally just like, huh, if I have to. I mean, he just, he's not into it. My point is this. All these people that we're to take encouragement from were broken people, just like us, that had reservations. He did not want to get killed by opposing tribes, by opposing nations. Gideon did not want to lead God's people. He was like, no, I don't want to go out there and get killed. Don't you realize we've been hiding for like two decades from the Philistines? That's why I'm in this hole threshing. Why would I want to get out of my hole and go get killed like a bunch of other people have in the past? So God's taking broken people and he's building his kingdom. And, and just like Gideon, who through no great faith, let's be honest, in the beginning... There wasn't a stellar moment where he's like, I don't even need your word, angel. I'm just in. God is so mighty. He's so powerful. I have no qualms about it at all. I'm so in. He didn't say that at all. He's taking those people and he's inviting us again and again and again. And he's saying, will you be involved in building my kingdom? Will you do that? And so we have this opportunity to take encouragement. It also notes that Paul knows it's hard. It's hard to live the way we're talking about. It's why he says we have to take encouragement from the Scripture and then we have to have expectation from the Scripture and hope. In other words, not just hope like I really hope this works out, but expectation. He says we have an expectation because of what's happened to the, the, the people before us in the Old Covenant. 
Then he says, and he ended like this prayer, may, may the God of endurance and encouragement, verse 5, uh, grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In other words, he's saying, I know this is a supernatural life. I know this is not a natural life. I know this is hard. I know that you could doubt that this could really be true. And, he says, and, then, and then there's just kind of this, this uh, kind of spontaneous prayer. May God bless you with this kind of encouragement in your heart. Be open to God sprinkling and, and filling you with his Holy Spirit to live in such a way. That's what he's saying there. And to be in harmony with one another, just like Jesus did. Verse 6, that together, so here's, here's kind of this final point that he's making, or it's, I guess it's a, it's a progressive point. He says that together, together with who? Together with all the people of the church, all the people bearing your burdens and all the people that you're bearing their burdens, to, to, together with God, together with the Lord Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God. The whole point of this is to make room for people to understand and to give glory, which means it's doxa, good opinion, to glorify God and uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This, this last little portion here, welcome each other to what? To your life. To fellowship, to interaction. He says, welcome each other. He started verse 14 by saying, welcome each other, but not to argue about opinions. And now he's saying it again, welcome each other, so that, that God might be glorified in that. And he's going to give a second example of Jesus. For I tell you that, that Christ Jesus, excuse me, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is the Jews, to show God's uh, truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in, and, uh, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And he's going to uh, go on and give some points from the Old Covenant, uh, the Old Testament, to, to prove that. But he says there, he says, look, Christ came, and he came to the circumcised, and he's just saying he came to the Jews. He didn't show up in Spain. He wasn't born in Spain. He wasn't born in Italy and Rome. He wasn't born you know, in Greece. He wasn't born in Cyprus. He was born... In Bethlehem, right? And he was born um, to Jews. And so he, he came to the Jews first. But he's saying, look, and he's, he's talking about this, this hope that, that God has and that his, what, what, maybe I should say his purpose, what God is wanting to do. And he's making the point through, these, through uh, the Old Testament that God wants Jews and Gentiles to be saved. And he wants them to worship together. That's why he's quoting all these Old Covenant uh, uh, quotations. And he says there in verse uh, 9, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Uh, that's from a quote out of Psalm 18 and a quote out of 2 Samuel 22. And the point being that God always intended for Gentiles, us, not Jews, to worship and to be part of what he was doing. It was always his intention. Verse 10, And again it is said, and this is Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That when God was ushering his people through the promised land, Gentiles were absolutely invited and there were laws that actually protected Gentiles. God knows human nature so well that he made laws to the Jews that said, if a Gentile joins themselves to you because they want to seek me, you cannot oppress them. You cannot uh, uh, enslave them. You cannot keep them from my temple. There were laws considering Gentiles uh, that, they, that gave them right to uh, follow God. And verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And yet again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who uh, uh, arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will be the Gentiles' hope. 
in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And he goes on. He's making this end point. He's saying, look, we're, this is what God has always been doing. God has always been trying to get the Gentiles um, along with him. First he used Judaism. Now he's using Christianity. He's using human beings, not just the, the, the um, institutions of religion but human beings to bring and help other human beings find what God's always, his forever purpose has been for them. To be near him, to experience him, to love him and be loved back, right? To be fulfilled, all the things that he's called us to. And Paul is just saying, look, the things that we're talking about in, in 12, 13, 14, 15, these chapters, they're not arbitrary. They're not just because it's a good thing to do. Is because God has this eternal purpose and is inviting each one of us to be part of that purpose. That's what he's saying. And so I just encourage all of us, it's always easier to not be part of it. It really is. It's way easier to never bear someone else's burden, isn't it? Especially it says it talks about the burden of the weak. The burden, the weak people's burden, and I'm not labeling anybody, but as he puts it, there are the, the burdens of strong people are easy, right? Like a burden of a strong person, I'm using air quotes here, is like my mower's broken, can you help me? And you're like, yeah, I could probably swing something. But the burdens of the weak, they're never like that. It's never just like an hour at someone's house checking out their mower. It's, they're, they're, they're much deeper usually. And sometimes they can be matters of the heart that aren't easily solved. Sometimes it can be crazy, messy situations where you're just like, I don't know, I don't know. Right? But he says we're obligated to do that. And he says, the more that we do that, the more that we lay down our lives, the more, the way, the more that we're, we're, we welcome people to ourselves to be of assistance and to, to elevate them, he says, the, the more fulfilled our own life will be and the, the, the larger his kingdom will be. And, and so we have this opportunity and this ability to do that. We'll stop there. We'll start it next week anew in uh, chapter, excuse me, verse 14. Um, so we have a, uh, just real quick, we have a lunch. Um, I know it's the loyalty date parade, which is probably why we're like half full, but um, you're welcome to get lunch to go if you want, if you're going to the loyalty day parade, uh, or you're welcome to eat with us. Uh, something, aside from that, something that I'll be after service. So this, here's, a, here's a weird announcement. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, uh, and I promise you I'm not going to drone on, it's 1201. Um, I've been thinking a lot about personally uh, just through reading Romans and just my own life, like how I was, how Christ really won my heart, if I could say that. Because um, <clears throat> for me personally, it wasn't the Bible. I found the Bible pretty boring, to be honest, in the beginning of my Christian life. Um, I didn't get a lot out of it. I didn't really care about it that much. Uh, I understood that people, the Christians looked at it and said it was valuable, and so I think there was maybe some intellectual, like, oh, okay. Um, church wasn't a really a big thing to me in a lot of ways um, because it, you know, there's some guy joining on for like forever uh, and stuff like that. But what really won me to Christ to actually get me interested in the Bible and so forth, it was, it was fellowship. And I, I don't want to like, I want to be really careful here. I think, this is just an opinion. I think fellowship is one of the most important parts of healing. I really do. Um, and so it can be really hard to find chill fellowship. Um, 
whether it's because the, the room is packed from the meal and it's really loud and you're like, what, what? Or if it's because, uh, you know, a lot of times church functions always re- revolve around the word. And that's why I want to be careful. I'm not trying to down the word or something like that. So a lot of times, for me personally, I can feel like I don't know if I really want to go to that extracurricular thing because I'm worded up. I'm just being honest. Like, I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm worded up. But you know what I'd really love to do? I'd love to just, like, hang out and not feel obligated to say something or do something. So because that's something that's heavy on my heart, I'm just going to throw this out there. Um, my wife and, and youngest daughter are doing a girl's thing, so they're, they're gone this weekend. Uh, but me and my oldest daughter, I'm just going to come back here and barbecue some burgers at the church tonight. So if you want to have dinner with me and my daughter, uh, we'll be here. I'm going to get here at like 4.30, and my plan is to eat at 6. Um, that's it. That's like, like, what's the plan? I told you the plan. That's the whole plan. So if you would like to have dinner with me, just let me know. So because I think I have like, I think I bought like eight pounds of some ground beef, and I bought like eight buns. So if you're coming, <laughs> you're going to need to bring something. If you want onions, you got to bring them. I brought meat. Well, I brought bacon too. So I got some meat. I have some cheese and some bacon. So if you would like to come and have dinner with me and my daughter tonight, just let me know. It's no obligation. It's pure. Just hang out. You know, we even have a TV in there. We could, like, watch something. I don't care. I, did I say that in church? Like, it just, but it, it's, it's seriously just, just a chance to hang out. And it's just so that we can have fellowship. And uh, so you can, you the strong can, can bear the burdens of my weakness. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your kindness. Lord, thank you for this food that we get to eat right now. Um, and Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for our nation. I do. Um, And we thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you for the privileges that we have. Uh, Thank you for, I appreciate the Constitution too, Lord. Thank you for all those things. And we're blessed. We've done nothing to deserve it. We, 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 man, you're so good to us. But Lord, I pray that even in the the midst of this blessed nation, that our priority would be your kingdom. Not our kingdom, not our Constitution, but yours. I pray, Lord, that you would be elevated in our hearts and upon our tongues and our mouth. And, Lord, that people, we'd be loving people, that we would treat our neighbor with care so that they might be built up, that we would treat one another with care, that we'd not look to despise or judge, but we'd instead look to lift up and to bear burdens. We pray, Lord, for our community, that we would be a bright, shining light, that every church on this peninsula would be a bright, shining light uh, of your love and your kindness and, and the conviction of what what destruction sin reaps on people. And so we pray, uh, as we eat together now, uh, that you be blessed and glorified. And as we go out of this place, we'll be filled with your spirit. We'd have opportunities to build uh, people up. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.